Truth for Life, as the name suggests, is about taking doctrine, theology, the truth we learn from Scripture, and then making application of it to life. Because, as I've said the first uh, three weeks of this class, this is week number four, our objective is not for any of us to be Bible trivia buffs. It's not for us to simply know and collect facts and theological knowledge, but rather it is for us to put it into, into practice. And that's the Bible's purpose for itself, that all scriptures God breathed is useful for doctrine, rebuking, correcting, training, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The purpose of the Bible is to equip us to live and live in a way that pleases God. So that's why I want to take a class like this and to take some doctrines, the words we know, but perhaps the application not so much, and to see how they apply practically to our lives. Today, you see at the top of page 16, the doctrine is holiness, and I call it the privilege of being different. That it is, we don't normally think of it that way. Certainly, young people don't think of it that way. Because the desire is to conform, to be like everyone else. And if you're a Christian young person, or perhaps a Christian older person, but especially when you're young, you have this peer pressure to be like everybody else. So we need to instill in our children the privilege that it is to actually be different. And when I used to teach young people, I used, to, uh, I used to tell them, in fact, I have a lesson called this. You know, Jesus said, the truth shall set, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh, I had a little variation on that. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you odd. Okay. <laughs> and the reason is, think about it. Truth is not what everybody else has, right? Truth is not what, it, what the crowd lives by. And Jesus actually said, sanctify them. This is John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And sanctify means to be made holy. So when I would teach the, the kids about holiness, I would say, when you hear words like sanctification or saint even, everybody in Scripture that belongs to Jesus is a saint that's a person who's set apart. That's a person who's different. And sanctification is the process of increasingly becoming different. Growing in Christ, the more you grow in Christ, the more different you are from the world. And so it really is, if you think of it that way, it is a, a privilege, but we need to see it that way, and then we need to instill that privileged idea into our, our young people as well. So we're going to see on page 17 in a bit that the root word for holiness is indeed to cut, to differ, to differentiate, to separate. But top of page 16 then, when it comes to the Christian faith, a religious system centered on surrendering your life to a God whom you cannot see, touch, or hear, imagination becomes a vital element. Let me give you a brief definition of imagination as it pertains to faith. This is Paul Tripp. Imagination is not the ability to conjure up what is unreal, but the capacity to see what is real but unseen. To enable us to imagine, God has given us a dual sight system. We not only see 
physical things with our physical eye, but we have another set of eyes, the eyes of the heart. God has given us this set of eyes so we can see the unseen world of spiritual reality. But the problem is sin infects our heart and renders us spiritually blind. What the eyes of our hearts need to see, they can't. So God blesses us with the light-shining, sight-giving, eye-opening ministry of the Holy Spirit so we can see what cannot be seen with the physical eyes but is every bit as real. So let me stop there for a moment. So this idea of illumination, that is a theological term which does refer to allowing us to see what otherwise we would not see, thus the word illumine. So you guys know that the root of that is, is this room is illuminated. It's illuminated because the lights are on. Uh, and so if you're going to illuminate a room, you turn the light on. So to illumine, in fact, you know, uh, projectors and their quality and how crisp the, the picture is, is measured in terms of lumens, right? So that's the root of illuminating, giving light to, and there is the illumination of the, the Holy Spirit, and that's a, a real and necessary, necessary thing. Now, what Paul Tripp, Tripp here says I have, I have no problem with, I just can't relate to it too much on a personal level because I have no imagination. <laughs> I've never been a science fiction guy, and all the stuff, the people that have imagination are just weird to me, so they're holy in a different way for me. That's just... Not, I'm just a matter of fact, objective, read it, put it in a logical fashion as best I can. That's how I, that's how I roll. So the whole imagination thing. But I still need illumination, though. All of us do. As we read God's Word, in order for it, it's because of this ministry of illumination of the Holy Spirit that the truth of God's Word resonates with us. That's the word I, I like. The Word of God resonates with me. The truth resonates with a Christian because we have the Holy Spirit. Because somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, somebody who's not a Christian, can read the same thing. They can even be a biblical scholar. No kidding. There are biblical scholars, people who know manuscripts, who know Greek and Hebrew, who can translate the Bible who can interpret the Bible, and even then in that sense understand the Bible, but not appreciate the Bible, not welcome, not receive. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 is speaking of when it talks about the carnal man or the natural man or the unsaved person. It says that they do not receive the things that come from the Spirit of God doesn't mean that they, they can't get the meaning of something, but it doesn't resonate. They don't care. You know, they can read a verse like 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Christ died for your sins. Christ died for our sins. And they could interpret that for you. That 2,000 years ago, there was a guy named Jesus who was said to be the Messiah, the Christ. He died on a cross, and he did that for the sins of his people. And they don't care. Unless you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit's operating and you, you don't care. So what the Holy Spirit does, probably with people who have personalities that are imaginative, is what Paul Tripp is saying here. For those of us for whom that gene never clicked, 
then it, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's work of illumination causes God's truth to resonate with us. But either way, you need the aid of the Holy Spirit to fully grasp, appreciate, welcome, and then go out of your way to apply what it is that God says. So that fifth paragraph then on page 16, all of this is critical to understand before I begin to unpack the doctrine of holiness. Why? Because I'm very aware that what we're about to consider is dependent upon the illumining ministry of the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our heart to see. The doctrine of holiness is so far beyond anything in our ordinary experience that we have no comparisons or categories to help us understand it. Holy, 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 coming from, as many of you know, Isaiah chapter 6. If you're a Christian and at all biblically literate, you will know that the Bible, without equivocation, claims that God is holy. Isaiah 6.3 provides the most potent declaration. The prophet Isaiah, at the moment of his calling, received a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne with seraphim on either side. And one seraph called to the other seraph and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, rightly, do not cruise past the repetitive emphasis. It wasn't enough for the seraph to say God is holy. He had to employ the word holy three times to capture the depth and breadth of God's holiness. It's as if I were to say to you, I saw this guy at the uh, ball game who was huge, huge, huge. You would know right away that this was not an average big guy. Because of my repetitive emphasis on the word huge, you'd be forced to imagine that this guy was the biggest guy I ever saw in my life. And in the same way, holy, holy, holy is meant to stretch the boundaries of your imagination. Whatever you think of when you hear that God is holy, you need to know that God is in an entirely different category of holiness, much holier than you ever thought holiness could be. And even holy, holy, holy was not enough for the seraph as he tried to capture God's holiness. He had to add the whole earth is filled with His glory. How great is the holiness of the Lord of hosts? Great enough to fill the whole earth. Again, these words are crafted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to take your imagination where it's never gone. They're meant to blow your mind with the thought that God is unlike anything you have ever encountered. They're meant to humble you with the realization that God is fundamentally different, intended to help you understand that you're dealing with someone greater than anyone and everyone you've ever dealt with before. The Lord of hosts is holy, holy, holy earth-filling, and gloriously holy. He is holy, holy, holy. So, let's stop, and let's ask God to help us. Let's pray, and ask God to cause His truth to resonate with us, to fire our imagination for those that are imaginative, and for us to see that there's so much about God that we don't see, and that we are incapable of seeing and ask Him to help us see much more than we have. Let's bow. Father, we thank You again for the privilege of being in Your presence with Your people. And we thank You now for the privilege in this time together to consider Your character and the fact that You are different than all of Your creation that you are above your universe, that the universe itself can be defined as all that is not God, that you are not part of creation, rather you are the creator, 
And so you are transcendent. And we could not understand you in, at all. And we could not know you at all unless you deign to stoop down to make yourself known. We thank you that you are then not only transcendent, but you are eminent, that you have talked to us, that you have made us in your image, that you have made a connection point between yourself and your highest creature, humanity. Lord, we don't have the capacity in our limitations to know you fully, but we thank you that you have allowed us to know you truly. And we seek to truly know you and to know you as much as is possible in our limited capacities in your fullness. And so, Lord, help us to admit that we don't and help us to strive so that we further do each day, each week, each month. We ask you to use the teaching from this lesson about your holiness to indeed fire our imaginations, cause your truth to resonate uh, within us because we are yours and we have your Holy Spirit and you have given this truth in order to make us holy, to sanctify us and to cause us to be able to approximate obedience to your command, be holy as I am holy. And so Lord, we commit this time to you and we ask you to use it to make us more like you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what is holiness? Our translation for holiness comes from a Hebrew word, kadosh, which means to cut. To be holy means to be cut off, separate from everything else. It means to be in a class of your own, distinct from anything that's ever existed or ever will exist. Kadosh means a second thing. To be holy means to be entirely morally pure, all the time and in every way possible. So do you see that two aspects of this separateness are being emphasized here? One is that you are physically apart. You're, you're different. You're in a different category. But then the other one is you may be with other people or other beings in the case of God, but you are uh, completely morally on a different plane than they are. So God is high above his creation. He's transcendent, but he's also morally different than his, than his creation. That's why... Uh, you can you know, be with somebody in the same space, but you can still uh, display holiness, and they can sense that holiness and maybe even resent that holiness. I, I read the story years ago of uh, a professional golfer who was golfing with Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, and they had their round, and when it was over, the golfer goes into the clubhouse, throws his uh, clubs, curses a few times. Uh, one of the other golfers says, hey, what's, what's going on? He goes, I just had a round of golf with Billy Graham. I don't need Billy Graham cramming his religion down my throat. He goes, wow, what'd he say? The guy said, nothing. <laughs> you know what's going on there. The guy's accustomed to every time he hits a bad shot, what does he do? <laughs> And then he's oh, I got this, the holy guy by me, you know. And so there's, a, and so there's this moral difference that, that people sense. Now, I want to stop here and take some time to kind of elaborate on uh, what this means practically for us. It's common for people to think of holiness in terms of what you stay away from because 
It has at its root separate, <coughs> apart, different. And so then it's very easy to have a, only an emphasis on holiness as what you avoid. And so you see that in a number of ways. Uh, one is, uh, I've got three of them for you. Uh, in the way we do rules, in the way we give our reasons, and in the way we think about righteousness. I could have a sermon on that. They all start with the same letter. <laughs> so the way we think about rules and reasons and righteousness. Just think about the way we think about rules. Our rules are mostly what you don't do. And a lot of people are just big rule people. Don't do stuff. Uh, at our parent church, we had a dear sister, and she is a dear sister, and she was, a she was an executive secretary for decades. When she retired, she volunteered her time at the church, did a great job uh, for us. I remember the first day she came into the office, and I worked part-time, so I came in in the afternoon after seminary classes. And the senior pastor, when I came in, got me aside. She'd only been there four hours. And he says, uh, I think Caroline's going to have us organized by this afternoon. <laughs> she was just a house of fire, man, doing her thing. She was great. But she was a big rule person. And she would put signs all over the church for things you can't do. Don't do, don't open this, don't place anything here. Don't. There were just these negative signs, you know, all over the place. And the problem with that is, in my, in my view is, that you get enough of those, and it just sort of gives you this kind of oppressed feeling. So I'm, I am a, a person who wants the minimum number of stuff you, you can't do, okay? Uh, but we do have this idea that we need to have rules for everything. And again, it's understandable because there are a lot of things that the Bible says you're not to do if you're to be holy. Thou shalt, there are a lot of thou shalt nots, right? But here's what we forget with regard to our rules. That all of the things you don't do in Scripture are all because of what it is you're trying to do. That avoiding things are, is not an end in itself, but rather you stay away from things so that you can accomplish something greater. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, you know, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, all the thou shalt nots, right? Lots of prohibitions in, in Scripture. But Jesus said all of them are summarized under two commands. Love God, love neighbor. And he says on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Now notice those two commands. They're not things you avoid, they're things you do. The reason I don't use the name of God in vain is because I love God. The reason I wouldn't bow to an image is because I love God. The reason you wouldn't murder somebody is because you love your neighbor. The reason you wouldn't steal from them. So, of course, Jesus was right. All of it can be summarized under loving God and loving neighbor. So our rules, though, betray us. The way we think about them betrays the way we think about, then, holiness. We think of it first in terms of what we don't do. So as a kid, you know, we had a hymn book before the days of having screens and all of that. And in our hymn book, we had a, a song 
called Take Time to Be Holy. <laughs> but, you know, as a kid in my holiness Pentecostal church, which meant we have more rules than you do. That's what, that's what holiness Pentecostal meant. I mean, we had tons of rules. Tons of rules about what women could wear. They couldn't wear pants. They you know, couldn't cut their hair. They had all, we had rules for all kinds of things. No smoke, no chew. Don't run with those who do. Kind of Amen. rules. Okay. And yet, as a, in my hymn book, you know, to take time to be holy, I had learned so many negative rules about holiness that I thought, how do you take time to not do something? But that's the way I'm thinking about holiness. Take time to be holy. Does it take time to not do something? But it shows how skewed my, my idea was. So you see it in our rules. You see it in our reasons as well. That when we try to decide whether or not we should do a particular thing, whatever it is, uh, we start very young as kids asking the wrong question. We say, what's, what do we say? What's wrong with it? But what should the question be? The question shouldn't be the negative, what's wrong with it, as long as there's nothing wrong with it. But rather it should be, what should it do? Anybody know what the right question should be? What's right with it? That changes the whole paradigm now. Because now I'm thinking about something positive that I'm supposed to be trying to achieve and whether or not this thing helps me to do that. So you've got your rules, you've got your reasons, and the way we think about righteousness. We think about righteousness in terms of not doing anything wrong. That you're righteous if you, if you don't sin. And so we think of the work of Jesus as only dying on the cross for our sins. It sounds horrible for me to say that because it's such a monumental thing. But Jesus did and had to do something more than that. Before he died for you, he had to live for you. And for you to go to heaven and for me to go to heaven, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Where are you going to get that perfection? You get it from the, the righteous life of Jesus. And the righteous life of Jesus was not simply avoiding the wrong stuff. Jesus always did the right stuff. So when, in order for you and me to have a relationship with God, we have to have a double cure. As the old song says, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. You have to have a double cure. The double cure is I've got to have the stuff I did wrong paid for. But then I've got to have perfect righteousness, everything right before God. And I get both of those from Jesus. Paid for my sin and all that I've done wrong and will do wrong, past, present, and future on the cross. But I get his robe of righteousness from him doing everything right. So do you guys see that how we just kind of get into a mindset that is this negative mindset. When I say negative, I don't, I don't mean uh, poor mindset. I mean negating, not, avoid, don't, stay away. And we think that's the sum total of, of holiness. But instead, we stay away because of what it is that we're, we're trying to do. So, we're to be holy which then requires that we are set apart 
different from the world. The Bible sets those against one another. Do not, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, neither the things in the world. For the things of the world do not come from the love of the Father. It goes on to talk about the characteristics of the world that we are to avoid. Uh, James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Uh, James one twenty seven says, Pure religion that God our Father accepts is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, And do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So over and over again, the world is bad, the world is negative, you're supposed to be different, holy. So practically, how do, you, how do you do that? And you have to be careful that you don't misdefine what the world and worldliness is. Otherwise, here's what you'll do. And this is what my Pentecostal upbringing did. And this is what many of us, after, even after I was a Pentecostal, I was a legalistic Pentecostal to only become then a legalistic Baptist after that. So I just traded one sort of legalism for another one. But what both of them had in common with regard to worldliness was this. The unspoken definition of worldliness was, worldliness is whatever non-Christians do. If non-Christians do it, I don't. If non-Christians go to it, I don't. One of the reasons that people are shocked when I say, like, I, the number of movies that I've seen in my life, like you could count on two hands, uh, that's, that's true. Uh, last Tuesday was Valentine's Day. February 1st is our anniversary. So we combined them. And it was my job to come up with something for us to do. So we've gone to the DSO a number of times over the years. Kim's loves that. I looked to see what they were doing. And on uh, Valentine's, the DSO showed the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. I don't know what the Princess Bride is. But I know it's girly. And Kim's my girl. And she probably knows what it is. And we like the DSO. So I buy tickets for the Princess Bride. And we go to dinner at this place called Mario's that then shuttles you over after Mario's to go to the DSO. It's a great, great thing. Uh, well, it turns out that the DSO is showing the entire movie, The Princess Bride. they got a big screen up there, and they're playing the score to the whole thing. Yeah, but Kim, it turns out Kim had never seen it. Now, I lost my mind because I, <laughs> because I got these kind of late. And so I'm looking online, and like all the seats are taken, and I see these two seats in a box toward the front. Now, we've never been in a box. I don't make enough money to buy box seats to the DSO, okay? But I'm supposed to get the thing. There's two seats there. And they weren't that much more. I bought them in the box. Here's the problem. When you go walking in up top and you go into the box, that means all the commoners down below, they can all see you. <laughs> and a couple of church members saw me. <laughs> 
And they texted Kim. And they said, hey, we see you in the box. And I'm thinking, they're thinking, we pay that guy too much money. <laughs> so there we are in the box. And it was, it was, it was really great. Uh, why do I bring that up? Here's why. Because if you simply say worldliness is what the world does, you'll get it wrong. Because in God's common grace, sometimes the world gets it right. In God's common grace. If God did not give common grace, that is grace that is commonly distributed, given to the world, not just to, to Christians. We get special grace in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in Scripture, in all of that. But common grace is grace from God given to mankind so that people made in His image can do amazing things like play instruments and make movies so that you can then, if there's not moral defilement or something like that, you can go and watch them, which I am told is the reason why all Christians have seen The Princess Bride. Because back in, the 80, in 86, when this thing was released, it was one of the few movies that Christians were allowed to watch. That's what I was told. I told this story at my Wednesday night class. There was about 40 people in there. When I said neither Kim nor I had seen The Princess Bride, every face went. <laughs> they couldn't believe it's possible that there was a person walking around that's never seen The Princess Bride. And Matthew Donnelly yells out, inconceivable. <laughs> Those of you that have seen The Princess Bride know, that, know why he said that. I see two people back here saying I never saw The Princess Bride. Is that right? Okay, so we got a handful of people like me who have never seen it. But, but that's why. It was, one of the, it was one of the few movies that Christians were allowed to see, right? So, but, but worldliness is not simply what the world does. So if we're going to practice holiness and pursue holiness in our lives on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis, then we need to understand the relationship between common grace and, and worldliness and holiness. And I, I give it to you this way. That worldliness is a subset of culture. So that if I had a board here, I would say you got two circles, and the outer circle is culture. And then you got an inner circle, and you would call that worldliness. Some of what the culture does is worldliness. In fact, a lot of what the culture does is worldliness. But there's this area that is culture that's not worldly because of common grace. And your job, my job as a Christian, is to differentiate those, to make decisions about those. So it's not as simple as the world does it, we won't. It's what values, priorities, allegiances are being communicated by what the culture is doing in this particular instance, musically, artistically, cinematically, fashion, whatever it is. That's a harder thing to do, because now you have to do this cultural analysis and then make, make a decision and ask the question, what's right with it? One last thing, we'll move on. Parents, grandparents, 
The sooner you can communicate this to your children, the better. What holiness is, what worldliness is. You want your children to see themselves as privileged, not, not boastful, because the privilege comes from the Lord. But you want them to see that being in a Christian family does make them different, and in a blessed way. And here's how we live out that difference. Here's how we make decisions about the things we do or don't do. And if they buy into that, praise God. And the earlier you start, the better. I, we did it with our two girls. And we painstakingly explained to them. Actually, I didn't have to explain to both. I had explained to one. Can anybody guess which was the one? Okay. You have two kids come from the same parents and they're completely different. Lainey, our oldest one, just did it because we said so. Why can't all kids be like this? Annie came along to humble me. And we had long discussions. Annie wants to know why. But no, I'm joking, of course. But that was a very good thing. And it was very good for her to want to know why. And thank God she bought into why. And then began to conform her life to it on her own without us having to uh, force that. Okay? So the kids then are okay with being weird. You know, and I, I'm saying I'm being facetious with that, but they're okay with being different. Because that means I'm different for a better reason. And if they bought into that, now they see it as a privileged thing. And what everybody else has got the problem, not me. Back to page 17 then. <laughs> Third paragraph from the bottom. When you put these two elements of holiness together, the moral part and the transcendent part, you're left with only one conclusion. The Lord of hosts is the sum and definition of what it means to be holy. He occupies a moral space that no one has ever occupied before, and as such, we have no experience or frame of reference to understand what he's like because there's nothing like him. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There's even more to be said. God's holiness is not an aspect of who He is or what He does. It is the essence of who He is. If you were to ask, how is the holiness of God revealed? The only right answer would be in everything He does. Everything God thinks, desires, speaks, and does is utterly holy in every way. In every attribute, and every action, He's holy in justice, holy in love, holy in mercy, in power, in sovereignty, in wisdom, in patience, in anger, in grace, faithfulness, compassion, and on it goes. Now, those of you that have taken Master Plan for Life, maybe you'll remember Lesson 4. And in Lesson 4, we talk about the holiness of God. And we talk about this very thing, that God is holy in all that He does. In all of His attributes, they are all holy. And Lesson 4 talks about the attributes of God that we can emulate as creatures made in His image in some fashion. He's got attributes that we cannot emulate. 
Those are the attributes in the category of his, his greatness or his incommunicable attributes. So his sovereignty, his, his power, his, his knowledge. So he's omnipotent, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent. We can't emulate that. They belong to God alone. But then you've got this other category of things like mercy and grace and righteousness and faithfulness and all of those. And those are things that image bearers can emulate, but even so, only a pale shadow of their purest form in God. He is holy in all of them. Now, here's why holiness matters. At this point, you're thinking something along the lines, I get that God's holy. I'm not entirely sure how to define it, but the Bible declares it to be true, so what's next? How does this impact my life? First and foremost, the doctrine of the holiness of God sits at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every human being is responsible. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger with sin. There would be no perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice. There would be no vindication of the resurrection. There would be no final defeat of Satan. There would be no hope for a new heaven and new earth where holiness will reign over us and in us forever. That's well said and absolutely true. So we should always, we should always be thankful for God's justice. That God, that God does not tolerate wrong and tolerate evil because that flows from this, character, this, this holy character of God apart from which the world would not be able to operate even in the fallen condition it does. It is really true, middle of that page, that the biblical story would not be the biblical story if we're not written and controlled at every point by one who is holy all the time and in every way. So this impacts us in three life-shaping ways. It provides comfort in a world that seems out of control, seems evil, where wrong seems to be rewarded, right often seems to be punished. It's vital to remember the holiness of God. Every situation, location, or relationship that you have been in, are now in, and will be is under the careful sovereignty of the one who's completely holy at street level. It often won't seem this way, but God is ruling, and what He does is always right. What he says is always true. What he promises, he will always deliver. You have to preach this message to yourself over and over. Evil is not in control. Injustice does not rule. Corruption is not king. Satan will not have victory. God is and will always be worthy of your trust for this one reason. He is holy. With holy power, he defeats every evil thing that has made our lives sad and difficult and deliver us forever to a world free of all that's wrong. So we should be thankful because it should give us that kind of comfort, but also because it rebukes. You say, wow, why is, how is rebuke a, a good thing? But if your desire is to be conformed to the character of Christ, then that means you, that means I, need to be increasingly sanctified, the sanctification, which means we are increasingly made holy. Well, how can I be increasingly made holy unless I see the areas that I'm not? And that's what rebuke does. Rebuke is the same word in your New Testament for conviction. You could write the word conviction there. Holiness is what causes rebuke, conviction. And it's because of conviction then that I'm able to see the standard to which I don't, that I don't meet 
and then do what God says in order to, to move in that direction. So those four things that the Bible says that it's useful for, teaching, but then the second one in the list, they go in this logical fashion. You're taught what the Bible says, God's standard, and the next thing in logical order is rebuke. So the Bible's like a mirror that you look into and you don't measure up. And so you're convicted. If the Bible leaves you there, it puts a period after it, we're in, we're in a world of hurt. Thankfully, it doesn't. The third thing is correcting. So the Bible tells you how to cause to stand. That's what correct means. To cause to stand what has fallen. And then the fourth thing is training, discipline in making these the habits of, of life. Holiness is what induces that rebuke, that conviction that then can move you and me toward further Christ-likeness. And then middle of page 19, lastly, it defines calling. Because holiness is the essence of God's character, it becomes our calling as His children by inheritance. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am. Here's the best way to understand it. You are holy, and you've been called to be holy. If you are God's child, you stand before Him as righteous because the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been given over to your personal account. But there's a second aspect. You're holy because you've been bought with the blood of Jesus and you're not your own. To say you're holy means that you have been set apart by God's grace for God's purpose, to advance His mission as you display His character wherever you are, whoever you're with, whatever you're doing. And there's a third and final aspect. You're called to holy living. That means that between the already of your conversion and the not yet of the time that we're going to go home, obedience matters. Every thought, desire, word, choice, action must be done in a spirit of humble surrender to the commands of God. As you consider the impossibility of this call, take time to remember that God never calls you to a task without enabling you. God calls us to be holy, sends His Holy Spirit to live inside so we have the wisdom and strength we need to surrender to His holy call in all we do. Celebrate God's holiness this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for my brothers and sisters, my friends here who would take time to come this morning and to learn of You, and to, to open Your book, and then in this hour to see these, these truths derived from Your Word and to make application to our lives. Lord, I, I pray that this week we will ponder Your holiness and how far above Your creation You are and yet you deign to allow us a relationship with you and that you have called us indeed to be in the world but not of the world. And so to show your character in the midst of fallenness, help us, Lord, to see it as the privilege that it is. Help us to instill that in the next generation. But Lord, just help us to live that this afternoon, this week, and this month. Go with us. Grant safety. Bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.